You are listening to a message from Thrive Community Church, a church located in Southwest Florida. For more info, visit us at thrive-fl.org. We are starting this series. It's called Neighborhoods to Nations. This is our second week. We're in it. There are many other competing religions and theologies and philosophies, lots of things going on. And especially if you look, the stack of cards was, well, the cards were stacked against the church. There was nothing going for them in sense of they had the worst public relations issues you could imagine. No one in power liked them. Not among the religious leaders within Judea, nor the Roman magistrates. They all castigated them. There was no one of influence among their whole ranks. They had no marketing strategy. They had no buildings. They had no real strategy of any type that we can see except for how the Holy Spirit worked through them. They were a bunch of Well, country bumpkins that started the church, that might be a nice way of saying it, fishermen, tax collectors, social outcasts, a few prominent people, a few people middle class, but nothing that you would look at and go like, yeah, this is going to work. This is not one of the startups that I'd ever invest in, right? I wouldn't do it. No, it's like, that's a waste of time and money, but it explodes on the scene. And we're looking at what that means, what that means. We find out in the book of Acts what God was doing, what God had prepared to do, and what God continues to do. You know, the book of Acts does not end. It just kind of continues. Acts chapter 28, and then it's like, there's no good conclusion, because the book has still not ended. We are in the midst of the book of Acts today. And we're going to find out from this reading here in Acts chapter 3 today, yes, it's the first miracle at the hands of the apostles, but what we find out is it's really Jesus continuing his ministry of healing and forgiving and restoring and reconciling and proclaiming that he is Lord of all through the apostles and through you and me. So we're looking at that, and we're reading, I know, it's the entire chapter, Acts chapter 3, that we're going to read today. So bear with me, but it kind of all fits together. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, three in the afternoon, or is that six? Third hour? Yeah, it's the ninth, three, three in the afternoon. And a man, lame from birth, was being carried, whom... They laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who had sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. 
While he clung to Peter and John, all the people utterly astounded ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people, men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. But you denied the holy and righteous one, and you asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And his name, and by faith in his name, has this man strong whom you see now and see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man his perfect health in the presence of you all. And now brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance as did also your rulers, but what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. Repent therefore and turn back that your sins may be blotted out that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord and that you may, he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Moses said, the Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. You shall listen to him in whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your forefathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Now, you might ask yourself right away, and there are people that probably may be watching online or later on, on demand when they watch this, might be going like, wait a minute, so why are you focusing on this? Um, it's a miracle story, but do you really, pastor, believe miracles can happen? I mean, come on, right? There is a lot of skepticism this day about the supernatural, but then again, not, um, probably today, there are more people able to believe in a lot of strange things that are supernatural and beyond explanation, right? I'd say about 50 years ago, there was more of a kind of moder- at the peak of modernism in our culture, where everything is supposed to be explainable by um, natural laws and facts, and it's a closed system, and everything's understandable. Back then, more people were skeptical about miracles, and they'd probably say, you know, what you need to do is just kind of strip that out of the story because it's really not that important, and instead focus instead on kind of the morals behind the story. Okay? But now, these days, after we've studied a little more of natural laws, we're finding that we don't know everything. And in fact, that uh, things like quantum mechanics, if you've ever looked at that, or chaos theory, or you know, just probability, allows there to be a little more wiggle room, even within physics and in science itself, to what can happen. It's not so simple anymore. Now, if you're a rational person, if you're a kind of show-me person, if you're a prove-it-to-me person that miracles can happen, you know, by the way, there were skeptics in the Bible, too. 
uh, one named Thomas. You might have heard of those stories. Um, I would say even Moses. If you look back, Moses at the burning bush, Moses kind of saying, wait a minute, I'm not going there. You've got to prove to me before I go back to Egypt. He also is skeptic. There's a lot of skeptics. It's not like it's just a 20th or 21st century phenomenon. But I'm going to ask you this question. What are you really skeptical about? Okay. I like what Simon Edwards has written about um, just the idea of miracles. He said, the most common objection to belief in miracles is that they are impossible. A miracle would violate the principle of the uniformity of nature. This argument sounds persuasive until you realize it's not an argument at all. Rather, it's a linguistic equivalent of saying miracles never happen because they violate the principles that miracles never happen. In other words, it's a reflection of an ideological pre-commitment to a naturalistic worldview. Christians believe that we live in a system of uniform natural causes, but one that is open to the intervention by God, the creator of the system. Indeed, the concept of a miracle actually presupposes, rather than sets aside, the idea that nature is a self-contained system of natural causes. Otherwise, there would be nothing striking or surprising about miracles when they do occur. So the real issue is, are you willing to just maybe doubt a little of your whole firmness and certainty that we live in a totally closed system? That there is no possibility that nothing could ever break in to all the natural laws that are here. And it's got to go exactly with everything that we can see and experiment with. And I'm just asking for a moment, for anyone online or here in person, if you've ever kind of doubted, just doubt your doubts for a moment about miracles. Just kind of leave that possibility open. That there might be something more in the universe that you can't figure out that doesn't fit into your brain or into your categories. And now also, if you're a person that happens to be here or online or you see this and you're a person that's trying to figure out uh, if Christianity, religion, God thing is even worth pursuing, don't start, I know this sounds, you might go like, what? Don't start with the miracles like this, these stories, no. Um, don't get hung up on them specifically. Don't let some a priori assumption that this must be just a legend or somebody must have added this in to just kind of verify. No, just don't do that. But rather, focus on who this whole story is really about, Jesus. Look at who he is, his character, his work, his teaching, his claims, his whole life. Verify the whole Christianity stands or falls on Jesus and J Jesus alone. And this story actually does so as well. You can't find a part of the story that is independent from the message of Jesus. Peter right away says, don't look at us and don't look at this miracle. Look to, and he speaks and preaches on Jesus. A lot of people might say, John, I would believe in God as long as the, you can come up with a nice, rational, watertight argument for God's existence. And here's the reality. The New Testament does not give us a watertight argument for God's existence. It gives us a watertight person. You get to speak directly to Jesus and ask him. Look at him. See what his life is like. You will find again and again. Um, you can't find the... It's just an amazing thing when you... And you will be convinced by his person, by his teaching, by his work, that's where you check it out. That's where you find out 
Does Christianity, don't look at the church. The church is, is a lot of broken people coming together to be brought together and reconciled and forgiven and changed by Jesus. Look to Jesus. He's the person to make the decision about whether this thing is real or not. Now you might say then, well then John, why are you focusing on this story at all, Acts chapter 3? And I think we're going to discover in this first miracle kind of an understanding of all miracles in the New Testament. We're going to also find in this first miracle at the hands of the apostles that what's really going on here is a continuation of Jesus' earthly ministry. But now he's not doing it by physically being in one bodily place in one time, but he is now has given his authority to us. And we are the ones who are now accomplishing his ministry in this world. Like I said, the book of Acts doesn't end. Really, the gospel of Jesus Christ has never ended. And so we see that that's what's going on here. So this is what we're going to learn about this miracle. I think this will also help us. Because I've always, when I grew up um, and went to Sunday school a lot, which is a good thing my parents, you know, did, is you learn these stories and you think, oh, wow, that's great. You know, God can do whatever. But what do you learn about that? What do miracles actually point to? What are they about? What's the meaning? What's the content behind it? We're going to find these four points today, that miracles like this one point upward, point forward, point inward, and point downward. Okay? First of all, point upward. What I mean by that is what I kind of said before. It points to Jesus. Always points to Jesus. So in Acts 3, Peter interprets this miracle that is happening. He says, And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. So he points directly to Jesus and says, This is an accreditation. This is a testimony to what Jesus Christ has done. Miracles point upward. Okay? You can't, re you, you could take this out of the story, but you don't have much of a story left. You can't reduce Christianity to just a set of principles or moral ethics or nice things or sentiment. It's really about the fact that God has intervened through the person of Jesus Christ in a miraculous way. It's hard to believe, uh, well, how... Uh, the incarnation may be one of the greatest miracles of all. Have you ever heard that word, that Jesus, that God could become human, that the finite is contain, uh, contains the infinite, that God comes vulnerable and open and part of his creation? And if that is the case, then, you know, we're all living with these miracles, but they all point back to God's grace and love in Jesus Christ. And it points to the fact that the disciples aren't kind of just doing their own thing and deciding whatever to do. They always point back to Jesus. Notice in this passage, they didn't say, look at us. Look at what we're doing. Look at how great we are. We've got a ministry going on here, and we want you to be a part of it. And by the way, can you give us a little money, and we'll you know, bless you some more? Miracles don't point to the, they point up. They don't point to me. 
Here's a good definition of a disciple. A disciple is someone who does what Jesus does for the same reason Jesus did it. It's always going to glorify God. It's always going to point up. It's not going to point itself. And Jesus becomes the model of what we do. So we have grown and we are to grow in his character, his compassion, his grace for all people, his love, his service. And that Jesus, when he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go and make disciples. That's what we do is we make disciples. This miracle, this person, by the way, becomes part of the disciple band. And we'll see that in just a minute. He follows along. He doesn't just get a healing. He gets a whole new life given to him. The miracle here points up to the fact that what we know about the apostles and what they're doing actually fits in directly with the ministry of Jesus. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. God is still at work through his people, and the ministry of Jesus is still happening a billion-fold across this planet now. And we are a part of it. Doesn't point at the apostles. They said, we're nobodies. I'm quite frankly skeptical, like I said, of uh, some people who have uh, claimed to be faith healers today because not so much that miracles can't happen is the fact that they're pointing the miracles directly at them and then trying to build up their ministry as a result. Miracles don't do that. Miracles point and give glory to God. Secondly, or B, they point forward. I think this might be one of the more important aspects of it. Luke, in writing this account, accentuates certain aspects of how this, um, this lame person responds. And notice in Acts 3.8, it says this, And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. Now, I know for us, we're not as embedded, I don't think, in the scriptures um, in our culture, we're embedded more in like pop culture and all sorts of things. You know, you can ask somebody on the street today, name the four Gospels, and they can't come up with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but you can ask them to name the Beatles, and they can get all those names, right? <laughs> Maybe not the younger generation anymore, but, uh, um, but the people of Luke's day would go like, huh, that sounds familiar. This guy leaping and jumping and praising God because they would know the law and the prophets. And the one prophet named Isaiah who wrote this about a time in the future that God would bring about in Isaiah 35. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. And this is exactly what he's doing. He's showing the future that God has for this world is now entering into the presence because of Jesus Christ. What God intends for this world in the end, which is what Isaiah is speaking about here, this messianic era where God is going to bring healing to the nations. He's going to mend all wounds. He's going to restore the whole created order. And in fact, Peter emphasizes that in his sermon again, when in verse 21 of this chapter, in the middle of his message, he says, whom heaven must receive, that is Jesus, until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets. So Peter is saying, hey, look, 
This miracle is just a foretaste of what God intends. This points forward to what God intends in this world. You know, getting back to um, anybody who might be a skeptic about miracles in general, um, miracles in the New Testament hardly are ever spectacular. Like, they may be in some ways, but that's not their point. They're not to just wow. You know, Jesus doesn't say, here, hold my cup, watch this, you know. He doesn't, uh, he doesn't turn over and say, check this out, and do some kind of fancy schmancy thing. You don't, how about, like, you know, does Jesus, he, I never see him levitate in the Bible. Boy, that would have really turned a lot of people on. It's like, wow, look at him. He's just floating two feet above the ground. That, well, it's kind of what the devil wanted him to do, you know, jump off the temple and just kind of float down. Miracles are never for the spectacular or to just wow people. They always point forward to what God intends to do. So you don't see Jesus doing magic tricks to prove anything to anyone. He doesn't just make money rain down from heaven. He doesn't, um, you know, do anything that would just, you know, no laser light show in the sky to just turn people on and excite them. And what you find is almost all the miracles alleviate human suffering or are done in such a way to take away the threats of death and disease and destruction in this world. And that's why? Because God's intention is to bring healing to all of his creation one day. You know, God didn't invent blindness or lameness or suffering or death. Those things have come into this world because we turned away from him and uh, disease and poverty and alienation and wars and all those things came into being. But the miracle is that God is not happy with the way this world is right now. And he tends to restore it and bring it back to the way he wants to see it. This miracle doesn't point backward. It points forward. That's kind of amazing, too. It points forward to what God is going to do in our future. It's very hopeful doesn't point back and say, well, why is this man blind or lame or whatever? In fact, in John chapter 9, there's a, uh, a miracle where the disciples are kind of going like, what's going on with this guy? Because he was born blind, it says. And they question and they point back and say, well, was it his parents that caused this because they sinned? Or was he, did he sin when he wasn't even born yet? Because they want to always point to a cause in the past and miracles point forward to God's provision and promise and direction for creation in the future. Miracles are then really not a suspension of the natural order to bring about something that's, they're a restoration of God's intended order in the future that he brings. I love, Jürgen Moltmann put it this way. He said, Jesus' healings are not supernatural miracles in a natural world. They are the only true natural things in a world that is unnatural, demonized, and wounded. Isn't that amazing? I love that. In other words, this is where God is heading this world to, and it's so hopeful, so hopeful. God is, one of God's greatest enemies is death. He takes it on. He is not satisfied with death getting the last say in your life or in this world. Jesus comes to take on death and to destroy the power of death in our lives that is a result of sin and the devil himself. 
And since we are now on his side, he says he has us moving out in this world and wherever we can, in whatever way we can, to restore life and healing and wholeness. Wherever there is suffering, wherever there is injustice, we are pointing forward and saying we are going to do what we can now because we know where God is heading this world in the end. I don't know if you've ever heard of um, uh, Johnny Erickson Tata. She was paralyzed in a diving accident at a young age in her teens and has been a quadriplegic for decades. She points forward in her life as well to what God is going to do. I love what she wrote about all this. She, she wrote this, I sure hope I can bring this wheelchair to heaven. Now I know that's not theologically correct. But I hope to bring it and put it in a little corner of heaven and then in my new perfect glorified body standing on grateful glorified legs I'll stand next to my Savior holding his nail-pierced hands. I'll say thank you Jesus and he will know that I mean it because he knows me. He'll recognize me from the fellowship we're now sharing in his sufferings and I will say Jesus do you see that wheelchair? You were right when you said that in this world we would have trouble because that thing was a lot of trouble. But the weaker I was in that thing, the harder I leaned on you. And the harder I leaned on you, the stronger I discovered you to be. It never would have happened had you not given me the bruising of that blessing of the wheelchair. And then the real ticker tape parade of praise will begin and all of earth will join in the party. And at that point, Christ will open up our eyes to the great fountain of joy in his heart for us beyond all that we ever experienced on earth. And when we're able to stop laughing and crying, the Lord Jesus really will wipe away our tears. I find it so poignant that finally at the point when I do have the use of my arms to wipe away my own tears. I won't have to because God will. It points forward. You might go like, well, why doesn't just God do all these miracles all at once? Because it's not magic. He's going something deeper. It also points inward. Inward to the deeper work that God wants to do in our lives, not the magic tricks of just a quick fix here and there. You know, every, almost every miracle story in the New Testament points to a deeper need than the miracle itself. In Acts 3, Peter says that when he says, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What Peter is really saying is to this layman who's, he's looking for a transactional little, you know, give me a little money, get me through another day. Everything will be fine. Nothing changes. And Peter is saying, that's not what I'm here for. We're not here for a transaction. We're not here to just give you some stuff. Look at me. Jesus of Nazareth is here. It's his name. We're not going to just give you. It's not even that you, don't, you need more than just being able to walk. You need more than that. You're looking for something that will help you for a moment, and I'm going to give you something that will give you an entire new life. What's fascinating in Acts chapter 4, Peter and John are now in front of the Sanhedrin, basically because they are so upset at, hit, at these two for preaching about Jesus and for healing this guy. But what we find in Acts 4 as well 
is this. This phrase is written in that story, and I've passed it over many times, but there it tells you what's really changed for this man. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. In other words, Peter and John are there. This man has cast his lot in with the disciples. He has a whole new identity because of what has happened. He has a new family, a new future. And the more, they just, he just wanted gold, they wanted to give him something more than gold and silver. There's a telling miracle story um, in Luke chapter 5 as well, where um, you have four, four friends of a paralyzed man on a pallet, and they bring him to Jesus, and the crowds are around Jesus so greatly that they have to break through the roof of the place Jesus is and drop him in front. And you know what's fascinating about that story is it's obvious to everyone why they brought him to Jesus, right? He's on a bed. He's paralyzed. He's a paralytic. And what are Jesus' first words to this man? Luke 5.20 Man, your sins are forgiven. That seems like a non sequitur, doesn't it? It's like, wait a minute, what? Can you imagine being some uh, 21st uh, century person? You, 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 uh, you can almost hear this guy, uh, time out, Je- wait a minute, Jesus. Um, yeah, spiritual stuff. Uh, it's obvious why I'm here, can't you see? You know, my real need is. And we'll get to that stuff later, but come on, let's do the the most important thing. And Jesus is really saying, no, your most important need is not to be able to walk. Your most important need is to have a reconciled relationship with your God, to know that you are absolutely forgiven and loved, and that no matter what, you have that connection. So miracles don't point away from our deepest needs. Miracles often point to our deepest needs. And what you really need is a relationship with God based on grace through faith. As bad as suffering can get in my life, as bad as it gets in maybe Johnny Erickson Tata's life with what she's dealing with yet in a wheelchair, what she needs most of all is not to be able to walk again on this earth. She needed Jesus, and she knows that. Any miracle points to our deepest need to have a right relationship with God. You know, so often we'll say things like, you know, if I just get the right job, then I'll be happy. And for about a month or so, we are. If I get a new car, then I won't. Mm -hmm. And for about two weeks, if I just have a nice, you know, romantic relate, do you see? And we always, it's like, we're always looking for the shallow and the quick fix. And God has something so much deeper for us. And these miracles point to that. The physical is often not your greatest need. It's the relational. That fact that you are loved by God no matter what. And that is what is being offered here. And finally, miracles point downward. 
What do I mean by this? Peter kind of brings it up. He says in his message about Jesus, he says, Acts 3.18, and what God foretold by the mouth of the prophets that his Christ would suffer, he thus fulfilled. It's fascinating. In the Bible, almost any time a miracle happens, the miracle worker is exposed and vulnerable. They're not invincible. They're not above it all. They're not self-protected. I know even in the Old Testament, for instance, the prophet Elijah does this amazing miracle or God does this miracle of bringing fire down from heaven on Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal all get slaughtered. And immediately what happens to Elijah? His life is at risk. He runs from Jezebel. He's not protected. He's not some like Superman. He doesn't get spiritual Kevlar. He's not invincible. He's vulnerable. Jesus, he raises Lazarus from the dead in uh, John chapter 11 in the gospel. And immediately, you know what happens? The, The scribes, the Pharisees, the religious leaders plot to kill him. It opens him up. He faces, he risks there's another miracle in uh, Luke uh, where, he, um, he, where he's walking to Jairus' house to raise his daughter from the dead. Um, Jairus doesn't realize she's dead, but the, a woman comes up to him who's had a bleeding disease for 12 years and just touches his cloak. And the text is really odd here. It says, and Jesus felt the power go out of him. It points downward to the fact that every miracle is an act of self-giving by Jesus. He never does a miracle for himself. He never uses a miracle to protect himself. He doesn't use a miracle to defy death. He actually, in being able to do the miracles for other people, opens himself up to vulnerability, to attack, to death. The greatest miracle, as I brought up before may be the incarnation that God would become human. And notice God did not become Superman. He became a full man who was rejectable, who could be hurt, who could be killed, who would be crucified. Isn't that amazing? Miracles point downward. Becoming human, vulnerable, mortal, weak, and yet giving through all of these things. That's how Isaiah speaks about it. In Isaiah 53, he said, Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Peter and John tie this miracle directly to the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ throughout this message. You will not find an early version of Christianity, any early sermon in the book of Acts or anywhere else, where his death and resurrection, his substitute for us, is not a part of it. And any miracle is always pointing to that and pointing to the self-giving of God. That's, to me, just an amazing thing. So miracles, they point upward to Jesus, not to look at me. They point forward to God's future, not 
let's figure out the past. They point inward to our real needs and not away from those needs as a distraction. And they point downward to the downward mobility of our God and Jesus Christ who served us completely and without limit. And therefore, he is given the name above every name. This is the kind of ministry, yes, do miracles happen? Absolutely. What's really going on is the transformation of human life. And that's what we want to be here at Thrive. We want to, to be there to serve, to give, to point up to Jesus, to point forward to the future that people have, to point inward to their deepest needs, to point downward in our own lives to serve and to give. And then, just like the early church, I think Christianity can explode again in this world and in our culture today and grow rapidly. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this first miracle in the book of Acts that it really just confirms and validates the fact that you are still alive and well and working. You are the miracle worker, way maker, promise keeper, light in our darkness. That is who you are. And we pray, Lord, that Anything that happens in our lives, we can give you all the glory that it points up that uh, we don't point to ourselves. That, Lord, uh, we can point to your future that you have, that you intend for us. That we point inward to our deeper needs and are open to how you can meet them. And it brings us down to serve as you served and to love as you've loved and to be open to the needs of others as you were so vulnerable and open as well. We pray, O oh Lord, for all of these things in this church, Lord, that you would use us in these ways and that through Christianity that you would create throughout the United States and world right now a revival, a renewal, a change. It's been a tough year for, for us all, Lord, and yet, I think you have so much for us, so much hope, so much. Your promises are still true, Lord. Make a way for us to truly proclaim you. We lift up to you this day, Lord, people who need your healing touch. We pray for Chris as he will undergo, at such a young age, Lord, he will undergo uh, radiation treatments for his brain tumor, that your healing would be there. For Kai out in California, and his mother, Rachel, too, Lord, that through their cancer, you would work amazing things there, that you are the way maker and the miracle worker, and that you not just give a, um, a, a, a healing, but you transform hearts, Lord, through this whole thing. We pray, Lord, for Evelyn, that you continue her recovery at home and that you bring your healing and knit her together into this body in so many ways, Lord, that we can support her and that she, as well as all of us, have a community here of love and care as you intend us to have here, Lord God. We pray, Lord, that you would be working um, in the coming weeks um, as things open up a little more for vaccines, Lord, that you would also open us to the opportunities to serve more in this community and world. Lord God, um, you also know that as we are going to approach and receive your supper today, as you give yourself away to us once again, we know our deepest need is not just for a healing or, or something in this life, but for you.
and for your forgiveness and grace. So forgive us, Lord, for how we have pushed you away and how we have done our own thing and been so willful. And open us up, O Lord. Open up our hearts. Create in us a clean heart and a right spirit that we may receive your goodness and grace in all things. All these things we lift up to you this day, Lord Jesus, and we are confident you hear us because of who you are. Amen.